Today's sermon comes from John 19, 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. So the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. Ever since uh, the resurrection of Jesus, the church has been celebrating some form of uh, Palm Sunday for about 2,000 years. And just like things that we do all the time, again and again, again and again, we can tend to lose perspective on the meaning of it. We can tend to drift away from why we do what we do. And what's interesting about the Gospel of John is that the Apostle John is writing this book in a really similar situation. He, uh, John was the last of all the men who had been with Jesus and seen Jesus uh, to die. And he wrote this book at the very end of his life. After everyone who had been with Jesus had already passed away, he's the last one. He's living in Ephesus amongst, uh, basically functioning as the pastor of some of those churches that Paul planted in the book of Acts. And then this is about 60 years after the crucifixion. So the children's, children's, children of the men who first came to Christ are now becoming adults. And what you see in the book of John or in the backdrop of the book of John is that the, the perspective of the church had already begun to drift. New perspectives had started to creep in. Uh, you'll hear a lot about people called uh, Judaizers or Gnostics. We won't get into all that this morning. But basically the point is the church had begun to lose sight of the gospel. And so John, right at the end of his life, right before uh, he's about to leave and he knows the church is going to go on without him, he writes this. And he writes it so that the church in perpetuity can be established in the gospel. So on Palm Sunday, as we turn to John chapter 19, the question we're going to be answering this morning is why does the kingship of Christ matter? Let me say it to you again. Why does the kingship of Christ matter? And as we answer that question, we're going to be looking at three things. First, we're going to see how 
as our king, Jesus accomplishes our redemption. The second thing we're gonna see is uh, as our king, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus applies that redemption to us. And then the third reason it matters is you're gonna see that Jesus being our king demands a response. All right, so first, uh, Jesus as our king accomplished our redemption. As you get to John chapter 19, uh, we first meet Jesus being flogged, then he's being beaten, then he's being mocked. Eventually he's gonna be sentenced. It feels like uh, something that started out as a little bit of a misunderstanding has escalated really, really quickly and things are getting out of hand. That Jesus has lost control of the situation, right? You're, uh, he's dragged into the palace and a bunch of Roman centurions and an entire group of soldiers are beating him. And by the time you get to the story, you're like, what is happening? Until you get to verse 11. Pilate takes Jesus inside the palace and says, do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Did you notice what Jesus says in there? He says, you wouldn't have any authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. In other words, what Jesus is saying to Pilate is, I know that you think that you're my best, last, and only hope of getting out of here, but I'm the one who's actually in control right now. That everything that is, is unfolding right now is unfolding because I intended to unfold this way. See, the, another way of saying this is um, Jesus chose to allow the accusations of Caiaphas the mocking of the soldiers, the sentencing of Pilate. He allowed the beating, the flogging, all of this to unfold according to his will. Sometimes we talk about um, the passive and active will of Jesus. What I want you to see in this text is Jesus is not just able to control the situation, but just kind of laying back. He is actively in control of the situation. All right? So let that point sit with you for a second. The beating, the mocking, the chaos, Jesus is actively in control of. But then that leaves us with the obvious question, why would he do this? Why would Jesus choose to allow the situation to unfold this way? And it's really interesting as you watch it, um, Jesus, uh, throughout the entire gospel, Jesus intends to become king. He just intends to do it under his own terms. So there's times where people try to take and make him king and he Sometimes he pulls this like disappearing <laughs> trick and he's gone. Uh, other times people want to like, even, ho you know, Palm Sunday is a great day of everybody shouting Hosanna. They want to install him at the temple. And somehow Jesus manages to avoid that. But then you get to this night after Jesus has been rejected by the Jews or the Jewish leaders at the Sanhedrin, he goes, they get dragged in front of Pilate and notice as he's being flogged, He's being flogged as a criminal, or at least a rebel. But then from the time he goes to being flogged, he gets taken inside the governor's palace. And do you notice what happens? He comes back out of the governor's palace wearing a robe and a crown and gets presented to the Jews as their king. This wasn't like a, he was being mocked at the moment, but this wasn't a mockery. Jesus was actually by the Roman governor coronated as king of the Jews. You pick that up in the text. And so it begs the question, why would Jesus work all these things out to one, become our king and two, do it in this way? Well, first, the reason 
that Jesus would uh, desire to become our king is this. In the economy of God, and you see it throughout the Old Testament, the king is the representative of the people. Y'all have heard the term covenant. Covenant is basically means, um, you know, the, the, the stipulations of a relationship between powers or between, you know, political parties or kings. And God's movement towards humanity is always described as covenantal. And covenants always have representatives. And in the, in the covenant of God, the representative is always the king. And so Jesus becomes king because he intends to be your representative. He intends to be your substitute. But it begs the question, why would he choose to become king through mocking and through suffering and through uh, beating? Well, it's really important when you notice that he becomes king through uh, Caiaphas and the high priest and the Sanhedrin's rejection of him because Jesus didn't intend to just become the king of the Jews. He had in view all the nations of the earth, which means he had in view you and me. The reason Jesus chose uh, to, be re- to become king by being rejected by the Jews is so that he could become your substitute, so he could become my substitute. So the, so the first thing I want you to see in, with regard to that is the reason Jesus works all these things together in this particular way is so that he's able to take your place. He's able to exchange places with you. And then knowing that, check out the very next thing that Jesus chooses to allow to have happen. You see that at the end, verses 14 and 15? He becomes king. Pilate says, behold, you're king. And what's the very next thing that happens? He gets sentenced to death. See, Jesus is working all of these things together so that he can become your representative. And then as soon as he becomes your representative, he takes the sentence of death for you. So it begs the question, why does that matter? Well, it matters for a couple of reasons. One reason it matters is because uh, we do some pretty dumb stuff in life. As a fancy church word is sin. And the thing, I've been reading this book with Caleb lately, and, um, and it says, uh, um, God wants you to live with him, but because of your sin, you can't come in. Meaning our sin, our our independence, our choice to be separated from God has done just that. It's separated us from him. And it's made us, it's put us at enmity with God. But Jesus, in his great love for us, and as our king, intends to reconcile us to God. So this morning, what I want you to hear is if you're in Christ, and you see the sentencing of Jesus in chapter 19, what I need you to hear is that He was sentenced for you. You are completely reconciled to God. Second reason that really matters is we deal with our sin in our life. We don't just do dumb stuff, but it comes to visit us. And so along the way, we got to work that out in our, you know, horizontally in our own relationships. But I don't know if y'all have ever experienced uh, your own sin drive you away from the Lord. There's guilt, there's shame. You wonder, uh, how could a God accept or love me when I've done this kind of dumb stuff? And what you see in John chapter 19 is that Jesus taking your death sentence gives you the resource to go directly to God in the midst of your sin, not in your perfection. You tracking with me? 
All right, now here's the big one. Here's the third one. This is what I want you to hear. Do you know that God's faithfulness towards you is not based on you? It's not. It is based on Jesus Christ. I got an amen from the congregation. Yeah, <laughs> preach. Uh, here's what I want you to see. If you've been reading the gospel of John, chapter one through 17 is like this amazing story of triumph. Jesus is going from one incredible claim to the next, one incredible sign to the next, one incredible witness to, I mean, all the way until you basically get to, to the high priestly prayer where he's talking about the kingdom coming. And then, the, and then at the end of the high priestly prayer, he says, Father, the hour has come. And then everything goes sideways at that point. He shows, he gets betrayed, he gets arrested, he gets dragged in front of a trial, he gets beaten, he's flogged, and now we're watching him getting sentenced. And if you're reading the story, you're going, what in the world is happening? It's so easy right now to feel like Jesus is a victim of injustice, that Jesus uh, is not getting what he deserves. But I'll just tell you this morning, Jesus is not a victim. The one thing that Jesus Christ has never been is a victim of somebody else's injustice. What I want you to see this morning is that when it feels like Jesus uh, is not getting what he deserves or getting what he doesn't deserve, what I want you to see in the text is when it makes that pivot, you see Jesus start to actually get what you deserve. So it's your sin that deserves to be betrayed. And it's your sin that deserves to stand trial. And it's my sin that deserves to be sentenced by the government and to be sentenced to capital punishment. But what you see in the person and the work of Christ is that when Jesus goes through this sentencing, it's not just an expression of his love for you. This is Jesus actually doing work on your behalf. You hear me on that? Let me say it again. This is Jesus actually doing work on your behalf. So here's what that means for you. You can be completely sure that if you're in Christ, that if Jesus is your king, if he is your representative, your sin will never be visited. And the reason is, if your sin was ever to come back up and be revisited, not horizontally, but between you and God, Jesus would have died for no reason. And I can tell you, God the Father is not willing to relate to Christ in that way. So when you sin, you can take rest in the death sentence of Jesus. You can know that because the Father already allowed Christ to be sentenced to capital punishment, that it's done. That's good news. That means that your relationship with the Father and your relationship with the Son and your relationship with the Holy Spirit is built on the foundation of Christ and not your own. And it's also built on work that's already been finished, not work that's left to be done. Amen? Amen. All right. So what I want you to see in this first point is that even when we think it's out of control, Jesus is in control and is working all things together for your redemption. So that leads us to our second point. Uh, if we're in Christ and he is in control and he's working out our redemption, then what about all the hard stuff? What about all the really difficult seasons or the hard times or the bad things that happen 
All those things that create groaning in us. How are we supposed to make sense of that? And if you go through these things, usually you end up asking, if you're in Christ, but you go through, you end up asking one or two questions. One, is he still in control? Like what in the world is happening? Or you ask, does he still love me? All right? So I want to answer that question this morning. What is happening when we go through hard stuff? And the first thing I want you to see in the second point, I want to point you back to the text. Um, if you read it a couple of times, you'll begin to notice just how much action is going on. It's like a crazy scene. The high priest, I was talking to Jericho about this earlier this week. Uh, the, uh, the high priests are screaming at Pilate. Pilate is basically going in and out of the palace, slamming the door. The soldiers are beating Jesus. Jesus is quiet. Like it's chaos. If you're a, 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 like a grammar geek and you take, your pencil and you read real closely and you count up all the verbs. You know, there's 78 verbs in 16 sentences right here. I don't know about y'all, but like most sentences have one verb, maybe two. Uh, but this scene has like five or six or seven verbs per se. I mean, it's just chaos. And the second thing that's happening is Jesus isn't just stuck in between two random men. The high priests here that are screaming are being led by this man named Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is uh, the high priest, the chief priest. That also makes him the chairman of the Sanhedrin. That basically, since Israel doesn't have a king anymore, makes him the head of the nation of Israel. I mean, he's the guy, right? And then on the other hand, Pilate, he's not a chump. Pilate is the governor of Judea. The only person that Pilate answers to is Caesar. I mean, just think about that. The only other person who has more power than Pilate in this context is the man who in theory has utter power over the entire world. So Pilate's got a lot of power. So what I want you to see in that is Jesus is in the middle of this frenzy, in the middle of chaos. And he's stuck between where what we feel like is stuck between two people that are beyond his control. You know, two very big things that are hard to manipulate. And what does he do? He works all those things together for your redemption, right? So how does that apply to us today? How does, how does that type of control of Jesus apply to us 2,000 years later? Well, um, I don't know about y'all, but if you've ever been in a situation like Jesus is experiencing, where you're like, my life feels like there's 78 verbs happening in 16 sentences. Like, one child is sick. The other child's having a tantrum. You've got a project due in the morning. You didn't sleep last night. And all three of y'all are sick. You ever been there? How many of y'all have children that are under 10? Raise a hand. Yeah, that's what, that's what I thought. So you know it, life can be chaos. It doesn't even have to be bad stuff. Good stuff can make your life really, really frenetic. Or uh, maybe it's not just craziness. Maybe it's really big stuff that's out of your control. Like maybe you lost a loved one or uh, maybe part of your body has become broken or maybe that thing that you've been waiting on for so long still hasn't come. Or maybe um, pick it, pick the hard thing. Where is Jesus at in the midst of the chaos today? And where is Jesus at in the midst of the hard stuff? 
And what I want to point you to is what Romans 8 has to say about it. So flip with me over to Romans 8. We read it this morning during the Confession and Assurance, but I'm going to read it to you again. You know, when we're in the middle of those hard things, <clears throat> before we get to Romans 8, let me just share this with you. This, uh, this fall has been like the craziest fall for us. The, the people who know us really well, Joe's laughing, Joe and Carly are laughing. Um, we, so I've been in school full-time while I've been working. And then we've been, ra- you know, raising a toddler. That's crazy. And then Jen was pregnant with uh, our little baby girl. And on the weekend that Irma hit, I was supposed to be preaching and Jen's water broke and Addie came into the world premature. So it was just chaos. And then she's fine. We make it through that. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, we go to the doctor only to find out that she's got two little holes in her heart. And again, she's fine. She's going to be fine. But through all that, what happens is deep down inside of you, this groaning starts to well up. And you are literally like, what in the world is happening? I, uh, I, I, I'm embarrassed maybe to say this, but there's a couple of times that I've, no, there's more than a couple of times. There's a lot of times I've been in my truck with Jesus and I have been like, you better keep your promises because this thing is out of control. So what do we do? Where is Jesus at in the midst of all that groaning, in the midst of all of those situations? Read with me in Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What Romans 8 says is that uh, the same exact power that had complete control of Caiaphas and Pilate and was working those things together for your redemption is at work among you and is taking every dirty diaper, every broken relationship, every bad performance review, every missed opportunity, everything that you're longing for and waiting for and desiring and is working all of those things together for your good. That the same exact power that was at work among Caiaphas and among Pilate and weaved all that together to accomplish your redemption is applying that redemption to you right now. You hear me? But then we get to a crux. There's a sticking point. Sometimes our good isn't the same as God's good. Amen. There are times where the things that we long for are comfort and security. And those things are right and they're good. You, you, the, the Bible describes a term like shalom. Shalom means well-being. Things are, are the way they're supposed to be. You weren't designed to be broken and live in a broken world. 
So I don't want you to hear this morning that your desire for comfort is a bad thing. I just want you to know, when I point to you in the text, that Jesus might want something more for you than your comfort. So if you read, uh, continue in Romans, and right after it says that he works all things together for our good, do you see how he defines good? It says to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. That God's good for you is nothing less than himself. Let me say it again. God's good for you is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. And so what I want you to see this morning is that as you go through hard things in life, things that create groaning and things that uh, lead to grieving and things that leave you confused and frustrated and living in frenzy, that the Holy Spirit is at work among you to point you to Jesus in the midst of all that, that he redeems every single one of those moments. Let me say it to you a different way. The same king who left the throne of heaven, we just, that's a much better place than the world we live in. The king that left the throne of heaven stepped down into this mess and then was coronated in suffering and was sentenced to death for you so that he could reconcile you to himself, is completely unwilling to waste any of your suffering. That if he's already suffered to accomplish your redemption, he is committed to working every single piece of your suffering together to bring you more and more of Christ. So one thing I wanna leave you with this morning is as we're going through uh, hard things, a lot of times the question that we ask is, why are you doing this to me? But Romans 8 already answers that question. It says the why, why it's permitted to happen is because God is in pursuit of your good. And so two helpful questions for us to ask in the midst of hard things are instead of why are you doing this to me is what are you doing? And that's a good question. If you're in the midst of hard times, ask Christ, what are you doing? And then a second good question is how do you intend to use this? Not you, but Christ. How do you intend to use this hard thing in my life and to redeem your broken world? All right, so the first thing I wanted you to see was uh, through Jesus' sentencing for you that he was in control of everything and that in his control, he was working all that together for your redemption. And then I want you to see in the second point in Romans 8 is that Jesus is in control of everything and that he's working all of that together for your redemption. Both points are good news. The same power that accomplished your redemption 2,000 years ago is at work among you right now and is driving you to Jesus. But that leaves us with our third point about why the kingship of Christ matters, and it's this. King Jesus demands a response. That's really good news that I just shared with you. But we already talked about how uh, Jesus accomplishes this as our king and he accomplishes it for people who he represents. If you turn to uh, verse five, there's this um, verse that looms over the entire Bible 
It looms over probably all of humanity. And it's the, the question we need to answer today. I want us to wrestle with, let me just read it to you. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. There's Jesus, dressed like a king, beaten and bruised. And Pilate turns to the Jewish leaders and says, behold the man. That's a um, fancy way of saying, you need to decide what you're going to make of this guy. In the, in the, the super uh, big word, the, uh, I was going to say superintendents, but the, the like, the like, you know, the control of the Holy Spirit, Pilate calls the question for the Jews and says, here's the thing that matters. You need to decide what to do with beaten and bruised Jesus and decide whether he's your king or not. And so what I want us to look at this morning is three, three potential responses to Jesus. The first one uh, is the response of Caiaphas or the, the response of the chief priests. And you know, in um, Caiaphas' pride, he was convinced that Jesus was just nonsense. He was convinced that this guy was just an imposter who was gonna lead the nation astray and uh, was gonna be to the downfall of his own office and the downfall of, of the nation that in theory that he loved. And you know, we, we, that's available to us today. In your own pride, you can decide that everything I just shared with you this morning is nonsense. You can and to be honest with you, I won't even be mad at you if you do. <laughs> but I want you to know what the consequences of that decision are. And there's two of them from the text. One is, it leaves you unreconciled to God. Apart from Jesus Christ standing in and taking your capital sentence, you have no resource for dealing with your sin. You have no resource for your reconciliation with God. And that's whether you're in Christ now or not, like, like period in your life, you will never deal with your sin outside of Christ. But the second thing I want you to see is the same pride that would cause you to reject Jesus, that would cause you to believe he's nonsense, ultimately will lead to your own betrayal. This is going to get a little, um, a little semantic for a second, but I want you to see the irony of what happens to Caiaphas. You know, so Caiaphas is, uh, he's the chief priest, which I said earlier, makes him the head of the nation. All this is going on at Passover. Passover is the most important uh, moment in Israel's year. Rome was like the, the, the like mortal enemy of Israel. And then the kicker is the article of faith of Israel is we have no king but God. And so through all of Caiaphas' uh, pride and all of his denial of Christ, ultimately we get to the point here where he stands up publicly at Passover and screams at the Roman governor, we have no king but Caesar. That wasn't just a rejection of Christ. That was a rejection of the people who he was called to lead and love. It was a rejection of his own office. In fact, it was a rejection of his own family heritage. My point is the pride that leads you to believe that Jesus is nonsense will ultimately lead to your own betrayal. It will consume you. 
And I know that's bad news, but that's just the truth. The second response I want you to see is the response of Pilate. And in a, in a, in a church like this, probably the, of, of, the, of the, those two responses, the one that we're more susceptible to is this second one, the response of Pilate. If you're reading the story, you can see that Pilate is, uh, he's like on Jesus's side. And it's hard to tell if that's just out of frustration with Caiaphas or like he actually is starting to believe this stuff about Jesus. But along the way, as he, as he hears that uh, Jesus has claimed to be the son of God, it says that he gets terrified. He's greatly afraid, very afraid. And then Jesus, um, you know, steps to his authority question. And right after that says that Pilate desired or sought to release him. Pilate was looking for a way to side with Jesus in all this. In fact, even his flogging, there was three types of flogging uh, in, 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 around this period. The third one was the one we're used to thinking about. It's the one where they would like just beat you to death. But the first one is um, they would just lightly beat you as like, a, as like a message that you just need to knock it off. And the one that Pilate orders here is the first one. He's just trying to beat like knock him around a little bit so that the Jews feel bad for him and he can accomplish his release. So all along the way, Pilate is inclined towards Jesus. But then what happens? In just one verse, we go from, let me, let me point to you. So verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. And then verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat, and then at the end, delivered them over to be crucified. What in the world? Do you know what happens in between there? The, the part that I didn't read? Caiaphas starts yelling at Pilate and says, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Remember what I said earlier, but... The only man that Pilate reports to is Caesar. What's going on in the backstory here is that what Caiaphas is threatening is if you release Jesus, I am going to go to Caesar and tell him that there was a rebel king in Israel and that I brought him to you to crucify him and that you chose to release him. What that was going to do is that would, that would get Pilate executed. I mean, the best case scenario would get Pilate banished. And actually what you find is seven years later, Pilate does get banished from Rome. Uh, but all of a sudden, his curiosity towards Jesus gets met with consequence. And what happens? He makes the exact same decision Caiaphas does. He sentences Jesus to death. In fact, you could argue he, he, he probably did worse because he actually had the power to accomplish it. Caiaphas couldn't actually do anything about it, but demanded his crucifixion. The way that connects with us today is that uh, you can be inclined towards Christ. Your curiosity can drive you towards him. You can be for him. You can love the story of the scriptures. You can love the idea of the gospel. But as soon as Jesus' kingship 
has a consequence, it can cause you to run away. You hear me? As soon as your family or your job or your career and the way you choose to pursue that career has a consequence, you will be tempted to turn from Christ. That's the response of Pilate. Pilate didn't hate Jesus. Caiaphas hated Jesus out of the gates. Pilate didn't. The problem with Pilate is Pilate met a consequence. And every single day, our following of Jesus is filled with consequences. So if I left you at these two responses, that would be uh, really bad news this morning. We would probably go home to despair and just wait for Easter to happen so we can feel better. (laughs) But I'm not going to do that. There is a third response. And it's not in this text, but the apostle John gives it to us in chapter 20, verse 31, at the very end of the book, he writes down his purpose for writing the book. And we've talked a little bit about it through the series. This is what he says. He said, these things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Let me say that to you again. These things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So what is the response that John is driving at in laying out the substitutionary sentencing of Jesus and laying out the kingship of Christ? Here's what it is. John doesn't just say, I wrote these things so that you would believe in Jesus. He doesn't say, uh, I wrote these things for intellectual assent or so that you could rehearse all the facts of Jesus's life. He says, so that you will believe that Jesus, what? Is Christ. Christ is another word for the king. And specifically that uh, the Christ was a king who was going to redeem the world and reconcile us to God. See, John says that he wrote these things, not just that you would believe in Jesus, but that you would believe that he is the king. And here's the thing. What it means for Jesus to be your king is that your life is submitted to him. It means that Jesus has uh, ownership of your life. And the sweet news of that is that Jesus already served as your representative. He did all the hard work to give you the good benefit before he ever called the question. So you don't have to wonder what's it going to be like to submit to or serve this king. You can know that your redemption has already been accomplished and that your redemption is already being pursued. But listen, the call of Christ is that Jesus would be your king. And here's the sweet news of that. John says that by believing that, by believing that Jesus is your king, you would find life in his name. That you would find the answer and the satisfaction to all the deep groaning when things are hard, that you would find all the resources for being able to deal with your sin, that you would find uh, the perseverance in the midst of broken relationships, whatever it is, 
that you would find the resources for life in a broken world and for life to come in a perfect world, that you would find that in the kingship of of Christ. But it calls for submission. And so what I want you to see this morning is that even when it doesn't seem like it, Jesus is in complete control. And he is working at every single moment, all things together to accomplish and apply your redemption. But the call of Jesus is to become your king. That he desires to stand and be your covenant representative, but that means submitting your life to him so that you might find life in his name. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're grateful for the good news of the gospel that Jesus, you uh, stepped down out of heaven into your creation to accomplish our redemption. That Jesus, our uh, sin deserves capital sentencing, but we have peace with God and we have sureness in our hearts because we know that that sentence has already been carried out on you. That our peace with God and the foundation of our relationship Uh, with you is rooted in your merit. It's rooted in the work that you've already done. And Holy Spirit, we're grateful that you don't uh, leave us abandoned, that you don't leave us as orphans, but while we wait for Christ to come, you're at work among us, that you don't waste the hard things in our life, but that you weave them together to unite us to Christ and to form uh, his image in us. And so Lord, this morning, we pray that you would make us a people who Uh, are submitted to you, Jesus, our King. And we pray that in our submission to you, we would find life in your name. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.